Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have another mailbag episode for you. All of the questions during this episode were sent in through the contact form on our website or emailed directly to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered during a future mailbag, I'll include a link to our contact form in the description of today's episode. Today, we're going to be answering two questions related to our important relationships, the first inside our family unit and the second in the workplace. To help me answer your questions, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. So the first question that we have is a very broad one, and it's one that we've already covered a little bit in some previous episodes, so we might be a little summary about a couple of things. And it's what can we do to raise resilient children? Well, let me buy myself a little time about that and ask you, Forrest, what do you mean by resilient? I think it's a great question. And it's a very natural first question to ask in the kind of Socratic tradition of (laughs) of learning through questioning a little bit here, because there is sort of a natural tendency, I think, to just kind of bulldoze through a question without really asking yourself, what are they actually trying to ask me here? And The word resilient is obviously an important one to us. It's the title of the book Mm -hmm. that we wrote together. And it's an important one to me individually because I think that so much of being effective in life is about being effective during challenging experiences. I I think that mostly it just means raising children who are going to be able to live as well as they can in a challenging world. And so I think that's really the question is, how can we raise kids who are going to be flexible, essentially, and they're Mm. going to be able to respond to a lot of circumstances effectively, they're going to be able to plant their own flag, and hopefully lead a relatively happy life. That's great. I'm really glad, actually, I threw the ball back there. Mm. As you're speaking here for us, I can think of three kinds of meanings of the word resilient. The first one which you named, which is how to manage changing conditions without drowning in them, how to keep on going as the world is changing around you. I think that's a really important meaning. Another meaning is how to prepare kids for times or maybe how to help them if they're in situations or times that are way outside the normal range. Mm. Maybe they're dealing with, for example, a parent who has a terminal illness, or maybe they've themselves suffered a really devastating injury, even a potentially disabling injury. Maybe they're dislocated through war, uh, through migrancy, through climate change. Something has really happened that's really, really big. And then I think there's a third way that people mean it, especially parents, when they say, hey, how can I help my kid be more resilient? Mm. Because they've got a kid who can't even handle normal range problems. This is a child who's having out-of-bounds reactions to just the normal little things in life that are really inbounds, like getting a B on a paper in high school rather than an A. Or when the plate of cookie goes around, the next to last cookie, which is slightly larger than the last cookie, gets grabbed by your kid brother, and that's the cookie you wanted. Not being able to recover from those kinds of things. So how do we create resilience in all those forms, you know, but for, I think, what are meaningfully distinct situations? The one I really want to talk about first is the last one, because that's the one actually that I think for a lot of parents is where there's just a lot of friction. You know, they've got a situation where they've got a 10-year-old or whatever age in their family, and the least little thing goes wrong, like the morning routine is disrupted, or somebody gets one extra minute TV time or video game playing time compared to that kid, and 
oh, it all ends. Or, you know, they don't get, they're not able to wear their special green sweatshirt that day because it fell apart and it's in the laundry. What to do about that kind of kid? So maybe we could focus on that in particular. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I think that there's, of course, a large body of work here done by both psychologists and just kind of people much more casually on child rearing mm. and what good practices are for child rearing. I don't know if you want to toss out some kind of basic stuff to yeah. kind of blow through it relatively quickly, and then we could get to maybe some things that are a little bit more unique in nature. That's a great way to do it. So with regard to all three cases, but including the last one, a child who's just brittle, I'll just say that, of under normal range pressures. Okay. One, pay attention to physiology. Whether a child is 10 months old or 10 years old, do everything you can to shore up their body in reasonable, sensible ways, often based on just observing a child and get and realizing, oh, he's extra mopey after he eats a certain kind of food, or he's extra angry and aggressive after he visits a house that is a certain kind of moldy smell, or, oh, this is a kid who really needs sleep, or alternately, oh, this is a kid who can do without much sleep, but boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. They need to get protein on every four hours or they're going to be in big trouble. Do what you can to shore up physiology. Check that box. Boom. Second thing is to kind of build on the theme from the previous episode about um, narcissism and and normal narcissism and, and in general, more broadly, even normal social supplies. Make sure this kid is getting a lot of good social supplies. Love, nurturance. Also, that's attuned to the vulnerabilities and levels of need that the particular child has. Some kids just naturally need more than others do. Deliver the goods and really help the kid to internalize those social experiences because the internalization of healthy interpersonal experiences in childhood, and the younger the kid, the more true this is, the internalization of those healthy social experiences is a major pathway to growing resources inside the child for self-soothing, being able to manage their own reactions, self-control, being able to keep on going when the going gets tough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll say the third and last of the big three, I think, body, relationships, and mind, in a sense. Really call the kid to growing the executive functions which have to do with organizing and planning, and especially exercising top-down self-control, top-down regulation. You may know the famous marshmallow experiment. There's been a lot of variations on it and some controversies, but the essence is really true. Children vary in the degree to which they can naturally exercise self-control. And being able to exercise self-control, both innate and acquired, is a really, really useful thing over the lifespan. So. With our kids, I think there's a place, particularly when, you know, from about three or four years old onward, where you call them to putting on their own shoes if they're able to. You call them to being self-sufficient while in relationship with you, because sometimes kids fear that if they become self-sufficient, they'll lose the attention and involvement of the parent, especially if there's a younger sibling who's not so self-sufficient, who's really pulling, understandably, for parental attention and care. So while staying with them in a affirming and sweet way, oh, how good it is you can put on your shoes, sweetie. You know, call them to do things for themselves. Call them to make little plans, like two-step plans. Okay, what are we going to do first 
before we fill your lunchbox. And then also call them to exercising their will, to just delaying gratification for a minute or 10 minutes, things that are actually within range for them. So those are, for me, are super foundational, right? Make sure their body's as strong as it can be, love them to pieces and have them take in the love and also call them to develop an internal center of will and self-control. To point out one of those in particular, a lot of the material that we covered related to narcissism and the taking in of healthy narcissistic supplies and also the giving by caregivers of healthy narcissistic supplies to their children is somewhat thematically similar. It's not exactly identical, but it's relatively close to the material that we've explored previously related to forming secure versus insecure kinds of attachment inside of our meaningful relationships, where a lot of the time when somebody moves to a particular kind of insecure attachment, there are multiple kinds of insecure attachment. I'm going to lump them together here and just kind of talk about the territory. It's because they didn't get filled up with those necessary supplies that allowed them to form a secure relationship with their caregiver, knowing both that they could kind of exit the parental circle when they needed to, to kind of explore the unknown, and also that in the moment that they wanted to return, their caregiver would still be there for them and would give them all the love and support that they needed. So managing that balance is, of course, often a challenging thing, I have to imagine. I cannot speak from experience because I am not a parent, but I would kind of guess that that's really one of the more challenging things about raising a child is it's balancing the child's autonomy with security, both their perception of their security and their actual physical security. As a child, you might really, really want to run into traffic, but you shouldn't be allowed to Mm -hmm. in that moment. And that's a kind of yin-yang that I would have to imagine is, is rather challenging. I think it's extremely astute, Forrest. And as your dad, as well as your friend, mm-hmm. I'm so looking forward to you having kids. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try not to laugh too hard and also like, you know, hold my tongue and not, not offer too much unwanted advice. Well, you make me think about the fact that many children, unfortunately, are emotionally neglected, even mm-hmm. physically neglected, perhaps even abused. On the other hand, in the lives of, I think, a lot of kids who are living around the world, not necessarily in more developed countries of the world, in the life of that kid are probably many, many episodes, many, many times a day with parents, other caregivers, and even peers in which there is some kind of social supply coming to that child, like you were saying for us. And I think a lot the issue isn't so much a lack of social supplies for kids. It's that the kids are not taking them in. Hmm. They're moving on to the next thing really quickly, or the parent moves on to the next thing really quickly, or there's not a deliberate, named, conscious focus in the family on letting the good sink in and grow inside from the seeds that were planted. And I think that is full of opportunity for parents to slow it down for an extra breath and ask yourself, you're helping your child have this good moment with you, this good experience. Is any of it sinking in? Or is it just washing through the mind of the child like water through a sieve while all those irritating moments due to the brain's negativity bias get lodged in the net and then internalized? I think that that's a key here. It's to really slow it down and ask yourself, how many times a day has my child actually been touched? 
deep down inside with what happened between them and me. Mm. And that, that will naturally draw a parent into those realistic handful of times a day when you really can slow it down for a breath or longer and help the good to really land. I think that's a really sweet note and a really great point here overall where, of course, the frequency of positive connecting experiences matters, but so does kind of the salience of those positive connecting experiences. How big were they in the mind of the child? To what extent did they really land? To what extent were they absorbed, as you always say, as a lasting change in neural structure or function? To kind of throw maybe two others out there, at least one of them you kind of touched on a little bit. And again, I'm going to sort of do this kind of briskly because I would say almost all of the material that we've mentioned so far here could probably be its own episode. Mm. So, you know, we kind of by necessity have to move a little quickly. One is the skill of metacognition, mm. which is the idea that you can kind of watch your own mind think. Yeah. And by virtue of the fact that my parents were my parents, that you and my mom were my mom and my dad. I was kind of taught metacognition from a relatively young age where there would be a question asked of, oh, Forrest, why do you feel that way? Or even just, oh, Forrest, how do you feel? Or, oh, Forrest, why do you want that? Or mm. how, how would you like to do that? Or whatever it was. And it kind of forced me to establish separation is a strong word, but almost a kind of separated observation of my mm. own thinking and desiring processes from a pretty young age. Mm. And I think that that's a really wonderful skill to teach kids, maybe not three-year-olds, mm -hmm. but once you're into five and eight and certainly 12 or 15, I think the skill of metacognition, watching your own brain work and being able to take a step back and say, okay, maybe I want this, but why do I want this? And is it a good idea? is just an absolutely critical skill for any kind of capable functioning in the world. And as a final quick thing, the only other thing that I would name is openness and acceptance of unusual or varied or unique experiences. I think that exposure therapy of a certain kind can be really valuable, and particularly with regards to social experiences of different kinds. And particularly, particularly, as we move into an increasingly multicultural and varied and flattened world, running into people from different ethnic backgrounds, running into people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, interacting with a lot of people in positions of power of different genders, I think can really do a lot to lay seeds early on that will be really valuable to a child through the course of their life. So those are the other two sort of things that I would nominate if you're interested in raising more resilient kids. That's fantastic for us. And just to build on the last thing you said, it mm -hmm. reminds me of the power in the lives of kids. Certainly it was true for me in being taken out of your comfort zone or taken out of the frame you're used to in a way that's not devastating and horrible, mm -hmm. but because it's novel, you're put into a different situation the life experiences in that different situation are really salient and they really sink in. For example, I went to Finland for a year with my family when I was in my junior year in high school. I was 14 to 15 years old then. And that was an incredibly important time in my life. It was kind of like a reset for me because I was in situations where no one knew me and the force of social scripting had evaporated mm. and I got to discover who I really was. Or situations. I think back on my very first time as a Boy Scout in a camp out 
going to Joshua Tree National Monument, then a monument now called a national park outside of Los Angeles. And as a shy, squirrely, dorky kid with glasses, suddenly clambering on all the rocks, feeling my capabilities and freedoms and adventuresomeness and kind of primal, animal, burrowing, climbing, (laughs) delight, that was huge for me. That just really kicked the doors open. And people listening might think about times in their own life. There were really openings for them. And in those settings, they acquired a new knowing of themselves and some important strengths that went along with that. So I think, like I do a little charitable contribution routinely for programs that take inner city kids out of the urban environments they spend most of their time in, out into nature, genuine nature, not just a city park. And that's, I think, really, really important. Flip it the other way. Imagine kids raised in the country spending a week in downtown New York. That could be a really great experience for them going the other way. Just being pulled out of the familiar and drawn into something that's more of a frontier for you, where you can find really important parts of yourself. No, I think that's a really great note and a really wonderful point. As Because this is something that I'm sensitive to, I'll just give a one-second caveat here, which is that some of these things that we're naming here, particularly things that imply travel or access to a variety of circumstances or whatever that might be, could have kind of a vague whiff of socioeconomic superiority associated with them. Obviously, some kinds of experiences are simply not available to all children. And I think that that's really an important thing to note here, which is that not everyone has access to every experience. But that being said, man, in almost every environment, there is an opportunity of some kind, big or small, to expose a child to a different kind of frame whether that is going to the next town over or that is interacting with people of a different cultural background or whatever it might be. So I'd just like to kind of name that as a natural critique and my sort of response to that natural critique in that moment, uh, just because that's a topic that's, that I'm relatively sensitive to and is relatively near to my heart. So I think that's a good place to wrap our conversation on that topic. Sure. On. We could, of course, spend many more episodes on it, but we'll just kind of pause and put it there. Our next question, which is definitely one where we're going to have to ask that what do they exactly mean question about, is how can we deal with aggressive colleagues in the workplace? Mm. And my question here, I guess for you, much as you asked me, well, what do they mean by the word resilient? Mm. Here I'm kind of asking, what do they mean by the word aggressive? Because there's a big spectrum of aggression from kind of quote-unquote normal forms of interpersonally somebody short with you or clipped with you or they get kind of mean or they get you know a little snippy or whatever you know it happens in a workplace environment it's not ideal but it happens versus some really inappropriate forms of office aggression and i think that for the purposes of this conversation we're mostly going to focus on the first category well it's Really dependent, as you say, on what are the details. And mm-hmm. I sort of kind of want to name some, I don't know what to call them really, sort of like fences or to sort of bound the issue, bound the topic. Yeah, great. And I, and I have a background actually in organizational consulting and I've spent some time in large for-profit organizations as well. Let me just kind of walk through this. So let's right off say that there's a key question um, about how dependent a person is on this particular job. 
which goes to just knowing what your bottom line lines in the sand are. Maybe a few months after you leave, you're going to contact a lawyer and see if you have a harassment lawsuit or some other kind of basis. But can you actually leave? What are, you know, how much do you have to put up with? It's a really key question, fundamentally. And also, what are your options just for getting away from that person? Or in one way or another, including literally just moving to a different office 20 feet away. Is there a situational fix that could make things be better? So that's just kind of worth talking about and setting up as a bit of a frame. And then let's also be really clear that we're not going to be talking here about behavior that is sexual harassment or racist. There's a whole, not because we don't think it's important. Obviously, it's really important and it happens way, way, way too often and it happens a lot. So that kind of stuff probably has, there are certain pathways for dealing with that. We're not specialists, either you or I, on that process. I just want to call it out and say that if it's something at that scale or level, Mm -hmm. or for example, you beyond just sort of, I don't know what to call it, intermediate level sexual harassment, if you start to feel like you're going to be stalked or Mm -hmm. there's something actually physically dangerous or you're getting letters or emails that seem really, really creepy, that takes it to a whole level. So we're not going to speak to that level of things. I want to acknowledge that level and then talk about situations where your colleague is pushy, your boss is really bossy and dominating in their style, kind of quick, not very kind, you know, stuff like that. Coworkers interrupt you in meetings, talk over you, claim credit for your ideas, put you down in subtle ways. Maybe people who kind of form office cliques against you, coalitions, politics of one kind or another around the water cooler, this kind of level of stuff. So I want to just kind of quickly ding, 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 kind of list some things you might think about as a checklist. So one, make sure you're really on solid ground in your view of what's happening. Mm. Be clear about the facts. Is this a person who has just said something that really bugged you? Or is this a regular pattern of behavior? Are you the only person that the aggressor, I'll just refer to that person as the aggressor, is aggressing upon? Or is there a general pattern here that has some history. Very often looking ahead, it's helpful to find allies. And if you're not the only person who's been targeted by this aggressive individual, then those people are your natural allies as you kind of form alliances with them. You you bond with them, you form groups with them that can together more effectively stand up against the aggressor and or go over the aggressor's shoulders or head and shoulders to the next level in the hierarchy of the organization to complain about that person. So get clear on what's really happening here. Second, is the aggressor operating within the norms of the organization or are they actually out of compliance with the norms? And in different organizations, imagine the difference in the culture, let's say, of a Wall Street hedge fund firm, very aggressive, playing to aggression, That's the culture in that environment. Or imagine, you know, being in a professional sports team in the locker room where there's, let's say, a fair amount of aggression there. Distinct from, I'm going to stereotype slightly, please forgive me, a Quaker-oriented nonprofit or something like that, where it's just a very, very different culture. And then that, that, that matters because if the person is being relatively consistent with the culture 
and it's really the culture that bugs you, mm. you're going to have less recourse. Yeah, you're going to have a much bigger problems trying to affect some sort of meaningful change in their behavior. Yeah, because people might say, well, the aggressor you know, needs to dial it down at one number, but we're all, you know, we're all at least a seven around this joint on the aggression scale. And this is a results-oriented industry and that person's one of our top salespeople yeah. and look, you're just going to have to kind of deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So it really helps to be clear about, you know, what are you dealing with here? And then another thing is to stabilize inside yourself. And this can take some work and listening to some of our former podcasts, our previous podcasts, stabilize within yourself a centeredness that is less disturbed by the aggressor. Hmm. You may want that person's behavior to change over time for very good reason, but find increasingly inside yourself a place that's not afraid of that person, not cowed or bowed. You can just stare at them. It's inappropriate that they said that, and maybe it's not the time and the place to do battle with them about this put-down they offered at the office. But inside yourself, you can just look at them and have them know that you're not afraid and that you're biding your time and you're going to figure out what to do, but they haven't bullied you, not in the core of your being. That's a really important place to establish. It's a place to teach our kids to mm -hmm. find inside themselves mm -hmm. when they're dealing with bullies on the playground. And it's a place to establish inside ourselves. First, it helps us act more effectively when we do act, to act from that stable place inside that's not impulsive and reactive and frightened. Also, it's a sort of a level one test. If you rest in that place with the person who's being aggressive, some aggressors chill out. Mm. They get it. Mm -hmm. And maybe they get it in the form of they respect you and their own kind of calculation about who they're going to respect or not. Maybe they see that you're not a patsy and they can't get a rise out of you. And maybe they even feel the kind of the weight of your cool, clear view of them, which may have a certain amount of a head shake in it, kind of a shrug, a sigh, a little bit of healthy disdain for how they're acting, how they're being, what they've been able to get away with previously. And that is like a shot across the bow. Sometimes that's all you need to do. Just be centered and just kind of stare at them. Don't laugh. Don't act afraid. Don't take the bait. Just kind of look at them. That can often be really effective. You know? yeah. And it's fairly safe to do because it's not overly provocative. And you maintain your dignity. Maintain a sense of gravity. These are two good words. Dignity, gravity, gravitas. That you're there. You're present. You're not going to be pushed around by this person. Mm -hmm. They can say what they say. It's like a bunch of words. But you're fundamentally not going to be pushed around by them. Oh, that's an important thing to stabilize. Yeah. To summarize a little bit here, there are kind of three levels of intervention. The first level of intervention is you can choose to exit the situation. Unfortunately, this is not available to all people in all circumstances. Moving jobs is often a very challenging process for very many people. Getting a job at all is a challenging process for very many people. So we can't just say, hey, you know, if you're bothered by somebody at the workplace, just find another job. The second level of intervention is trying to change the other person's behavior in some fashion, whether that's by moving to a different segment of the company you're currently in, or that's by intervening above that person's head, talking to their boss, talking to HR, whatever it might be, or talking directly to that person and saying, hey, 
you know, you are doing this thing that is problematic for me. I need you to stop that. That's kind of the second level intervention. And then the third level of intervention is inside our own mind, which is what you're pointing to right here, inside our own core, inside of our own reaction to something. And I just want to kind of highlight something here, which is that on this podcast in general, we spend a lot of time talking about that third level of intervention, the interventions inside of our own mind. And I think that there could be a sort of response of some kind. And we've gotten maybe a few comments or a few questions, very polite ones, that have sort of hinted at this viewpoint, which is, hey, if somebody's mean to me, that's their fault. That's not my fault. Why am I responsible for dealing with my stuff when they're the one being mean to me? And for starters, that is a real natural question. Like I have many times in my life been in a situation where I go, sure, I can kind of just take it here, but geez, I really feel like they're in the wrong. Why aren't they being kind of punished for that? Why aren't they changing? Why isn't justice coming through here? And so it can be kind of unsatisfying almost sometimes to intervene inside our own minds because it feels like we're sort of forced to take responsibility for somebody else's problem. And that really sucks. That being said, it's easily the arena wherein we have the most freedom and the most flexibility and the highest level of possible intervention is with our own reactions. And that's why we kind of keep on coming back to it here. It's not justifying the other person's behavior. It's not excusing them for being a problematic person. It's just kind of being very clear-minded about it and open-eyed and saying, look, it's going to be really challenging for me to get out of this circumstance for one reason or another. My boss is unsympathetic. HR doesn't really care. And this guy's kind of a nut job and also happens to be pretty important to the company. So there's no real way that I'm going to get him out of his position or change his actual behavior. Okay, in that kind of ultimate bad situation, what do you have left? And the only thing that you really have left is intervention inside your own experience. And what can you do inside your own mind to make your life as good as it can be? That's a great formulation for us. And just to say back to you, like you do to me. Yeah, sure. You know, so we have these sort of like three kinds of things to think about. One is, can you leave? What are your, what are your main, you know, know what your walk away position is. Second, what can you do inside yourself in terms of your own inner practice? And third, how can you directly influence the other person? Mm -hmm. And on that, I was really working my way there because I think that third category, how can you directly influence the other person is really, really, really important. And I would just say that the kind of first thing I said about that, which is a, a kind of cool, dignified, unfrightened view of that person is itself an intervention. Mm -hmm. It's a good level one intervention because it's conservative and it's safe and it often is off is all you need. Second, I think growing allies is really, really important. Betas need to band together to deal with alphas. That's kind of a general rule from, you know, ancient tribes to modern politics. And so look for your natural allies. What's the line from uh, Mr. Rogers? His mother told him, always look for the helpers. Mm -hmm. Look for those who are helping. So maybe there are people in that environment who are helping. And frankly, often these things are about power because that aggressive person is doing what they're doing because it feels rewarding. They're going to keep on doing it until their expectations change and their expectations are not going to change until the contingencies change around them. In other words, the rewards and the penalties. And sometimes it takes allies who are one or two or three levels up in the organization who will exercise power 
in such a way that will actually make a difference for that person. Another thing you can do, and I'll be kind of quick here, is to uh, document. Mm, Just documenting, mm -hmm. especially these days. Documenting for your own sake, your little journal, that can put you in reality. You can start to see once in a while that what you're getting irked by is actually pretty small potatoes. And probably the best thing to do is just kind of take a breath and move on. On the other hand, usually what you do is you build up a paper trail and you're able to say, no, this is really an ongoing pattern. Or I just simply documented every single time this week that Bob put somebody down, either that it happened to me directly or I happened to, I saw it to another person. And he's averaging four put downs a day. That's 20 a week, week after week after week after week. This is more than a one-off. So documentation is really useful. Having it be known that you're documenting takes it to a whole other level, but that itself can be really useful. That Bob knows you're documenting, Bob's boss knows you're documenting, HR knows you're documenting, that can have a really big impact. Another thing you can do just finishing here is to speak directly with the person. There it helps to be very clear about behavior not emotion, unless there's some evidence that's really clear of a real opening to kind of share your experience. And Oren Sofer, in one of our podcasts about nonviolent communication, unless it's really clear that that's possible, if you're going in with the request, I think it doesn't work to show weakness. I think that generally what's most effective is to realize you're in a business environment, to maintain a kind of formality especially if there's any way in which what's come at you has been a put down for being emotional or having too many feelings. You especially want to stay away from that in what you're naming and what you're asking for. And so it helps to make the, essentially it's a request, it's backed up by consequences probably. But the request you're making, the more operational it is, probably the better the more well-specified. These are examples of put-downs. These are things you've said. Don't argue about the past. Just simply say, well, fine. If you've never done any of that, we won't have a problem going forward because you don't do it, supposedly. But this is what I'm talking about here, really, really exactly. And then see if you can get some kind of agreement. You know, people really vary. They vary from being mortified that you've pointed it out and they're so sorry and they want to fix it to they deny everything, but they change on a dime. And that's fine, I guess, better than the alternative. And then there are people who just double down and are so affronted that you've challenged their power in the dominance hierarchy that they're really going to go after you now. And then you figure out what to do after that. I think the last thing I would just say is uh, to be really clear what will happen if you escalate. In other words, if you speak directly to the person, if you go over their head to their boss, if you file a complaint with HR, there will be ramifications. And I don't say that to talk you out of it, but just to be realistic about the real world you're operating in. If you keep it at the level of personal request, vulnerable request, fine. But if you move past that to you've just had it and you want them to stop and you don't care how they feel, you're in a different frame. And in that frame, it's a bit of a war zone, frankly. Lawyers might need to get involved. You just really don't know. And be clear-eyed about what you're stepping into if you move into any kind of a formal complaint about somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that is about asking yourself internally, is that what you're willing to do? Is the problem at that kind of a scale? 
that you're willing to accept some of the other problems that might come from trying to address it meaningfully? Or is the kind of cleanest intervention the one we mentioned before, which is the one that kind of exists inside of your own mind? And that's very much circumstance to circumstance. And unfortunately, we can't give pure and specific advice on whatever this individual situation might be. So I think that's a really nice point to bring this episode to a close on. Today, we spoke about two challenges that can exist inside of meaningful relationships that we'll all have inside of our lives. The first one, what can we do to raise more resilient children? And the second one, what can we do to interact with or manage challenging, aggressive colleagues in the workplace? We started by talking about children and child rearing and some of the big kind of overarching topics that are named inside of these conversations around effective child rearing. Some of the ones we touched on as you started with intervening at three levels, intervening in the body, in the mind, and in the relationship of the caregiver with the child. I threw some additional ideas out there. I mentioned forming a secure bond as a caregiver providing the child room to roam, but also know that they can return to a secure base. I mentioned metacognition, and I also spent a little bit of time talking about variety of experiences, which you then reinforced. In the workplace environment, we talked about the three different ways, the three big ways that you can really intervene inside of a problematic relationship by changing the circumstance, by changing the other person, or by working inside of your own mind. Each of them have their positives and negatives. The one that is always available to us is working inside our own minds. But intervening with another person directly is a really important tool. And Rick gave some great advice on how to do so skillfully. So that's it for today's mailbag episode. Again, if you would like to send a question into the podcast, you can do it using the contact form on our website. I'll include a link to that contact form in the description of today's episode. We don't respond to absolutely everything, but I really do try my best. And I do earnestly read just about every email that we get sent. So at the very least, you'll know that it got to me in one fashion or the other. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. 